0: Don't oh, come on, man. Don't
1: you die on me, Foley! Oh! <laughs> I'm sorry, can we, <laughs> David, can we cut? What
0: is going on here? Hey, I'm about to jump out this, this helicopter like Wesley Smith. I'm doing the scene right now. Well, i The it. scene is about emotionality. Where is it? Oh, God! I'm dealing with a
2: bunch of America, for 300 years, has been the land of
0: promise for the rest of the world, the land of new frontiers. New opportunities.
1: Hey, we I know who I am. I'm a dude playing
2: a dude disguised as another dude. Clicking sounds. Sounds that reveal the
1: presence of radioactive rays. The instrument, a Geiger counter, is converting radioactivity into sounds we can hear. It's the hell one of radiation
2: that continually it from our... Some of us might not make it back. What do you mean? Like, not on the same flight? So, are we recording? We're recording. Uh. uh <laughs> radio voice. How about this here? There we go. did <laughs> not that in the Bee Gees do that too? Possibly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tank Riot. Today, I am with Sputnik. Good day. And Victor. Hello. And I am Tor. <laughs> this is episode 57. And we are talking about nonfiction documentary movies. Primarily about The movie director, uh, Errol Morris. However, first,
1: we would like to review the movie Tropic Thunder. I think that was just a hee-haw, pee-your-pants kind of film. What what do you guys think?
0: I went through a special operation (laughs) so that I could watch that film.
1: (laughs) Pump the brakes, kid. That man's a national treasure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic movie. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of fun.
1: I couldn't believe, you know, with
0: with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and blackface, that the biggest uproar was the word "retard."
1: Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, because <laughs> essentially, yeah, he was doing kind of a minstrel show sort of thing. Yeah, he did a yeah, fantastic yeah. job of the self-absorbed actor
0: doing the the total method show. actor, yeah, the method acting taken to the far extreme, which
1: a lot of actors do. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it it took the war film. I mean it parodied that beautifully, but really it was about Hollywood. And and they, they just dished on Hollywood beautifully. But if any if you've seen Rambo, if you've seen Apocalypse Now,
0: if you've Platoon. seen Platoon Platoon, if you've seen any of the uh Walker Texas Ranger uh films oh. of
1: No, I really try not to. No.
0: <laughs> Chuck Norris, you know the what are the Chuck Norris films? Uh um, missing in action missing in action one, 1 through twenty seven Invasion USA. So on, I mean, how
1: fucking long can you be missing in action? <laughs>
0: <laughs> These were all of those plots rolled into the Hollywood, you know, mixer shaken and poured yeah, back out. Right. Huge satire.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, definite satire. I, I, I think where the the retard thing became the big stink. Right. It, it, and the, the blackface did not, is Robert the Robert Downey Jr. character, you know, they're all actors playing actors, right? Playing roles or whatever. And uh, I, I think being in bl- blackface, he was considerably different than the uh, blackface characters from you know 80 years ago.
1: That, oh yeah, I mean, sure, yeah, sure. It's yeah. not sure. like burnt cork and you know big white <laughs> right. painted lips. I grant yeah. you, but the
2: the older ones were almost making were essentially making fun of black people, right? And uh, Robert Downey Jr. was attempting. To be respectful to Black people, although not necessarily achieving that, but I think the audience understands that he's trying. Well, the thing is, it's right. called
0: satire, and yeah. even the the retard issue, it was all satire, and the whole idea right. that this action star had made a a movie as the character's name was Simple Jack, and he had to be right. this retarded character, and then and then had overdone it, and it was all about Hollywood playing stereotypes. Badly, so it was yeah. a satire of right. Hollywood oh, exactly. playing yeah. retarded people or people with special needs. It was just, it right. was just unbelievable that this was an issue. They picked and, up and on I, that, and but, it,
2: but I think what happened is the 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 retard thing came off as as less respectful than the blackface. I thought he stuff. looked
0: exactly like Gary Busey.
1: You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> he really did. Yeah. Actually, like <laughs> Busey's kid. Oh my god, he looks like a bipedial mule. Yeah, and we're not talking about yeah. Buddy Holly, Gary Busey. Oh, <laughs> talking oh, with teeth on that kid. You know, I mean, he could eat an apple through a picket fence. I mean, just ungodly. Yeah, what's his, is his name? Like Jake Busey or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. He yeah, okay. he was on Contact, right? He was the yeah. religious loony, which he played beautifully. But right, anyways, yeah,
0: yeah I, I I thought like Robert Downey Jr. ran away with the movie though. I thought he did a like one of the best. I would say that, but I would also give big props to uh Tom Cruise. Oh my god, yeah. I mean In, oh. I heard someone say that they, they really liked him or
1: or were less afraid of him. You know, it's right. kind of like a balance there. It's oh, like th- he was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a studio executive, the very foul mouth studio executive. And Michael McConaughey mm-hmm. is the douchebag agent. Oh I mean, he was the pecker. awesome. Yeah.
0: Pecker. Uh-huh. The uh yeah. Jack Black wasn't given a lot to do, but he did it well, and he had one oh. of the most uproarious lines of the whole movie.
1: Yes, he did uh, when he was tied to the tree there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I surely think so. <laughs> you know, and Ben Stiller, good as always. So, I mean, yeah, it was. It's just a good film. Mm-hmm. I think you'd probably, I, I definitely think Tank Riot listeners would enjoy this film. High, right. high ceiling. Yeah,
2: it, it's a good film for movie buffs, especially. Yes. Especially war movie buffs.
1: Because you, you can pick scenes out of oh, yeah. all of your hits favorite Platoon war and movies. A, full apocalypse Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, Apocalypse Now. The apocalypse <laughs> Now hits were just <laughs> on target. I about wet myself <laughs> when they started doing scenes from Apocalypse Now. That... And the music was perfect, too. The music was perfect. <laughs>
0: And the straight man uh, who played San- Sandusky, I think his name was. He did mm-hmm. a really good job as well. Yes. Uh, you got to have your straight man if you're going to have this kind of a thing. And then Alpa Chino, <laughs> who sells the booty sweat. Oh, that's, oh. that's right. <laughs> uh, booty sweat and energy drink. Nut Bar. <laughs> <laughs> booty sweat energy drink. That's right.
1: This movie comes with fake previews and fake commercials, which is also a lot of fun. The commercials come right at the beginning of the movie, too. Yeah. So the, yeah. the the movie previews go right into the movie movie previews and it's not always obvious. And there's a serious yeah, yeah. preview with uh
0: Toby Maguire and uh, Robert Downey Jr as Kirk Lazarus that's just fantastic. It's the art oh. house film and wow, I, that was really good.
1: Very so very keep good. You eyes up for those trailers. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I like
0: the grindhouse tradition that's starting with your fake
1: trailers. Well, you know, yeah. um I saw a preview recently and um on TV, and and I I just kept thinking, oh my God, this is like the take the running, take the money and run movie of this fall. It's like Pacino, De Niro. Oh, I think you I've know? seen that one. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. so Pacino's gonna overact, um, De Niro's gonna underact, and meanwhile it'll all be to this you know like grinding '70s soundtrack. It's like, okay, you know that was cool about 20 years ago, but really now, do we? <laughs> well, we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, um, apparently, Tropic Thunder was a documentary, right? That's right, it was, and that's why we had to tie it in. It, it was you. Do, it
2: was a documentary about a making the story. document or de- making the film about the book. That something. Uh, yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, jeez, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that was particularly good. But yeah. but to return to Errol Morris. Now, if our listeners are not familiar with some of his films, uh, we could probably mention a few here, and it's possible that you might have you know seen them at at one point or another maybe not even known it was by Errol Morris or whatever but his his first film in the 70s was Gates of Heaven um Vernon Florida probably uh, I, well, the one that I think most people would probably be familiar with would be uh Fast Cheap and Out of Control or the fog of war.
0: Yeah, the fog of war got a lot of good press. The yeah. thin yeah. blue line was was one that really put him on the map. But uh, yeah, you know, he was a uh, University of Wisconsin Madison graduate. Yes, he was, and ba- that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about him. Besides loving his films, is he's a he's a Madisonian by college degree at least. Just Be- to remind
1: <laughs> history back in '69 when they were making history. <laughs> wow, wow that's bullshit. But the. Uh, but it, just to remind our listeners, if this is your first time listening, we are recording from Tropical Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, we are. Which in, in sixty nine was the seat of student unrest. Yes. Yeah, Free love and drugs I hear. Mifflin yeah, Street Block yeah. Party. Ooh. was about something. Yeah, back yeah. when it was a bunch of <laughs> drunken frat douches. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize to all the frat douches that might be listening. Nah, they can't turn on no. a computer, much less listen to a podcast. Well, it's an RSS. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do I care? <laughs> but In any case... Um, it
0: took him forever to actually come around to making his first film. He um, yeah. graduated yeah. with that that BA in history, and then he kind of... Kind of bounced around. He thought he could just step, you know, walk into Oxford unannounced and and you know get into the graduate program. And he thought he could go to Harvard and do that. And eventually, that, that's how I got in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, very toss, baby. <laughs> eventually, he got into Princeton, right? Yeah, and uh it went
1: great, right? Well, not so much. <laughs> Actually, what happened was he kind of got asked to leave. Because uh, he was uh, trying to uh, get a degree in physics, and he was trying to get his professor to look through the telescope. Uh, Mr. Morris, that's a kaleidoscope. It's not a telescope. Like maybe a little bit too much LDS in the 60s. I don't know. Now, was that the one where I'd, I'd read
0: in an article that he had turned in like a 30-page, a double-spaced paper for a professor and the professor gave him back a 30 page single spaced uh, article about how bad his paper was <laughs> oh, <laughs> and i think it was God. that same advisor that basically they did not get along it did not work out <laughs> oh
1: that's just awful man
0: but then he eventually where'd he end up then after that he went to uh he left in 1972 and uh he went to berkeley tried to yeah he enrolled as a phd student in philosophy i believe at berkeley
1: you know, history in Madison and then philosophy in Berkeley. Holy Ned, <laughs> you're going nowhere fast, baby. Would that be paper yeah. or plastic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd... What do you mean I can't work the fry later? Uh huh. I think
2: that well, uh, so, some of the better students in those areas end up working for government. Uh, I mean, in kind of stupid, yeah. oddball think tanks jobs. I mean, D- or dink tanks. I mean, like state government. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. just in the. The grind of it all, the, the monotony of state government. Not, well, not the cool parts. That's, that's where, Tor, you know, yeah.
1: Tor and I are, are definitely on the state tit. So. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We suffer <laughs> in our cubes. We do. <laughs> Quietly, <laughs> but intensely, you may well believe. <laughs> but he, he uh,
0: eventually got into the uh, Pacific Film Archive as a
1: major viewer. Your viewer yeah, that, no, that see, would that would explain a lot of things <laughs> i mean this guy is just honking the bong and yeah, watching films just all doing whatever Not that i'm judging whatever
0: he feels like and it seemed yeah. like he was more led by a muse rather than a yeah. a true interest in
1: something <laughs> he just kind of fell into it so and and I guess he was uh, a huge film noir nut and uh he <laughs> he said that they weren't showing the real film noir so they asked him. The archive asked him to write the program notes, and I guess he just kind of started getting into films after that.
0: Yeah, and he was hanging around with Tom Luddy, who eventually had financed a couple of films. Um, he was the, he was one of the financiers be- behind the whole Werner Herzog eats his shoe fiasco, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. Right. But he, but he also produced Barfly, which is right. the Bukowski film, and Powakwatsi.
1: <laughs> Where he met Philip Glass, who is has been pretty much the uh, person who does all the music for his documentaries. Yeah,
0: and Tom Luddy had the great fortune of introducing Errol Morris to Werner Herzog. So it oh, was sorry. while he was at Berkeley that he met Herzog for the first time. And even though you know Errol Morris had done no films at all, and right. Herzog was well getting into being a very known director, he right. uh, he they became fast friends, and they were kind of. They hung out together, and Herzog saw him basically as an equal. And one thing that I think is really interesting about those two guys is uh, Errol Morris's dad died when he was about two, and his mom, who was a Juilliard uh, teacher, uh, classically trained musician, right. um, raised the kids and never remarried until maybe 20 years later. And uh,
1: That's kind of funny when you start to think of it.
0: Definitely, and he played cello, and he was a, he was a great cellist, and... And the, the one story I, I remember about Herzog's upbringing is that somewhere around the age of 14, Werner Herzog got in trouble for... Uh, not singing when he was supposed to. And, and he, from that point on, refused to listen to music or play music or do anything musical until he turned 18. <laughs> wow. So he spent four years just not playing an instrument, not contributing, not doing anything musical. And to this day, he said that if he could take ten years off his life, he would do it. If he could just have learned an instrument, you know. Right. So he kind of they had that opposite direction of of music appreciation. Oh but wow! You you can see the stubbornness of Werner Herzog oh, yeah. showing up kind of early, like it's that. very Germanic. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah. Well, not surprisingly, Errol um, lost interest in his studies at Berkeley, and he visited, of course. Uh, beautiful Plainfield, Wisconsin, in seventy-five.
2: Now, oh my. now
1: for our listeners. <laughs> oh my, beautiful! Outside of Scannie Nation, Plainfield is quite famous as the home of Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Uh-huh. <laughs> famous digger up of people, and and Slaughter, slaughter of people, and lampshade
0: maker of people. It's like in bed, but with of people.
2: <laughs> Plainfield is in central Wisconsin, right? Which has it, its own surrealness. It is to it. They're, it's it's potato country, potato country, cranberry country. Yeah, a lot of pa- bogs, paper mills. But mm-hmm. uh, you go to places like Wisconsin Rapids, Stevens Point, Marshfield, Adams Friendship, Rome. Uh, all these areas, if you really dig into them. They're all kind of surreal. They are very spooky. Both Sputnik and I have spent a lot of
0: time in this area of the state. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. And, <laughs> and, and oh, have we got some stories. Yeah. Well, what's great about Errol Moore spending time in Plainfield while he was researching Ed Gein is he also did interviews with Ed while he was at Mendota, uh, Mendota State Hospital in Madison. That's where I also met Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> this was in 1975. He was right. in residence <laughs> ed ed passed
1: away in 84 so did you guys hang around a lot and no i played <laughs> cards with him though <laughs> you're serious yes oh yes my gosh. i actually did meet ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> what were the cards made of <laughs> well <laughs> so, so, it so turns was out he... they were plastic coated and very not sharp Not <laughs> very, they, so, so especially was he dull. good at cards yeah i mean when i met him he was just like this nice old man he had pretty spooky eyes, though, man. I got to tell oh, yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Those really kind of watery blue eyes, you know? Was it uh-huh. cribbage you were playing with him? Or? No, 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 no. <laughs> Just I don't even recall now what the game was. But, um, yeah, he, he, Plainfield is... Ed Gein's murders and uh, grave robbing were a huge national sensation in the late 50s in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Plainfield is this very small town, and people still go there to this day to try to... Well, in fact, I mean, this year is the 40th anniversary of, of the Gein murders. Oh, no, it's got to be more than that. No, the 50th, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, 50. 60, yeah. Yeah, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Time and, flies when you're chopping up people. Oh, <laughs> oh
0: geez. So, um... He Errol Morris went- had relayed a story about how one of the state corrections officers had shown him some of the artifacts that they'd confiscated from Gein and oh, kind of yeah. sheepish- sheepishly showed him something and said, uh, well, look at this chair here. You can tell it's made from a real person's buttocks because you can see the asshole. <laughs> I mean, he made furniture out of people. He made made, lampshades out of people. He made all kinds of things.
1: He made faces out of faces. And he's the basis
0: of even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Psycho. Psycho story is written by someone from the area. So there's a lot of just wonderful, cheery Wisconsin connections. A lot of
1: of Ed Gein material. But I mean, uh, so, but you know, Errol Morris wanted to um, essentially do a documentary or look more into uh, the, the Ed Gein murders. In fact, he got so obsessed that he actually uh, talked Werner Herzog and uh, Tom Luddy into um, trying to um, open Ed Gein's mom's grave. Yeah, the whole idea was uh, Errol had
0: hooked up with Dr. George Arndt, a genealogist. <laughs>
1: And they are out there. Yeah, who, wow. who had
0: written a book titled uh, Community Reactions to a Horrifying Event. And it's basically Ed Gein jokes. You know, like, oh. like why do Ed Gein's couches have covers so they don't get goosebumps? You know, right. like oh. horrible Ed Gein jokes. And and so Errol Morris didn't really get along too much with him, I guess. But but he did go to the gravesite of Ed Gein's mother and find out that Ed had dug up all the neighboring graves in a circle Around his mother's grave, right. but had never really dug up his mother's grave right and this doctor Arndt's theory was it was too uh you know aggressive to just go right to his mother, so from one of the graves, he must have had a tunnel that went to the mother so he could get to his mother's grave mm-hmm. and so Werner Herzog had heard this story with with uh you know with errol and 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 decided, well, why don't we just dig up the mother then and find out the truth
1: right. I mean that actually wasn't true though. I mean Ed Geen was delusional; he believed that um, by digging up bodies and manipulating body parts and so forth, that he could actually bring his mother back from the dead. So it wasn't necessary to really dig her up, right? Right. Wow. But but they were convinced
0: that he had, and <laughs> they wanted to see if the grave had actually been defiled in the first place. So, and, which, uh-huh. of
1: course, you know, by you know not having that you know little uh, piece of paper that allows you to do that, of course. <laughs> You, you have know, you do kind it of... in the dead of night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'd think people would be a little sensitive to that in Plainfield. field. There's people walking around with shovels at night. Well, yeah, so uh-huh. it was the
0: summer of seventy five and so uh uh this whole idea uh was gonna happen. So they were gonna meet there and then and then dig up the mother and Errol chickened out. Right. And so Werner was there. And that's what I love about him is he was there and ready to go. Werner, you know, <laughs> There's no stopping him. Mr.
1: Fitzcarraldo, man, he is on top of it. I
0: know. I love it. And then he and that was part of a little bit of a falling out for them because of that. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd be pissed, too. I mean, you're standing there in the middle of the night with a shovel ready to go and the guy pusses out. And then uh,
0: and he was going to write a make a film called Digging Up the Past. And Errol never got around to that. That just never happened. Um, but then in the fall of 76, Herzog came back, and he was there. He was in the middle of filming Strozek. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uren will tell me. He'll write in. But uh, <laughs> he he met Herzog and, and was just going to do some landscapes of the Plainfield area because right. it, it would fit with the tone of the film. And, and, oh, uh, yeah. And that that appalled Morris because <laughs> he thought stealing the landscape was a terrible form of plagiarism to go to Plainfield and steal its landscape. Uh, but he decided, wow. since he'd never worked on a on a real film, that he would help him out and work on the film. And that's where this whole exchange happened, where afterwards, Herzog, as payment, gave him $2,000. Right. And then, apparently, from some articles I've read, Herzog, or Morris, Morris went to the window and threw the the money out, out the window, and Herzog went and got it and gave it back to him and said, you know, please don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... And Make that, the film, yeah, and that was one of the one of the funds that he originally used to go to Vernon, Florida. Florida. So oh. again, he hasn't filmed anything yet, but he's been on all these adventures. He's done the studying of Gene, and now he's going to Vernon, Florida, to study up on an imaginary movie that he wants to write about uh, people living in Nub City. Right. So, so just back to Ed Gein. So did
1: he end up creating anything about Ed Gein? Or he just no, did research no. and no, he just he did the research. And it, I mean, research about Gene, th- there are tons of books and articles written about it. But it it becomes a very obsessive thing because, um, I mean, when I was working at Mendota, there there were people all the time that wanted to interview him, wanted to interview his case doctors and everything because they they, I guess everyone was kind of looking for the big why you know and and actually, if you know anything about you know his life, it's not that I mean, I'm not saying it all made sense, but just that yeah, I mean he had a he had a pretty tough life that I think would have probably warped most people, and you know these things do happen,
0: and there are some yeah. aesthetics that Morris kind of takes away from life, and one of one of the quotes I read of his was the fact that the world is utterly insane makes it tolerable right <laughs> you know? and, and the feeling that we're never gonna really Understand, you know, in totality, human nature makes his yeah. makes his documentaries all the more interesting.
1: Yeah, and well, that, it, he touches on that in a lot of his that's documentaries right. as well. I think if if our listeners haven't um, seen any of his films before, it it's they're they're very unusual films. I mean, he he finds very fringe subjects, and um, his pacing. Can seem very slow, and the it's not always obvious where he's going with some of his topics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, what I always find interesting about them is that they they always captivate and they always kind of build toward the end where you can really see like, oh, okay, that's what he was trying to get to, and so forth. I think Fog of War is probably like the best one of the best examples of that. Mm-hmm. You know, where he really just comes to some of the big questions and. Yeah. But um, we're getting way ahead. I'm getting way ahead. I hate myself. (laughs)
0: Well, well, he went down to Vernon, Florida, population 880 or so. Right. And decided to do some studies of the people there with an idea that um, he would work on a fictional story of uh, this idea he had heard that people had cut off limbs in order to earn money. Uh, A disability check, basically, right? Um, And he was going to call it Nub City. So he's going to work on this Nub City film in Vernon, Florida, and he got some heavy pressure from the locals that this was not a good idea to expose Vernon, Florida, as Nub City, either because it was true or because they didn't like the negative press. Right, right, true. But (laughs) anyway. Anyway, um, he ended up he ended up leaving, and he'd be, he'd received a death threat on that first trip, and right. and he took some of his footage back, and and ended up going back to Berkeley to try to write the fiction feature called Nub City with some of the footage and, and work it up. But uh, months went by. You know, he doesn't he doesn't do anything really fast. He's another one of those Douglas Adams types, slow right. slow movers, Just taking his time. And he saw yeah. that article in the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, with the title, 450 Dead Pets Going to Napa Valley. And that that was the launching of the very first film he ended up ever making called Gates of Heaven. And the whole idea was, due to the failure of a pet cemetery, um, all the pets were being exhumed and moved to another pet cemetery. And right. this just fascinated mm-hmm. him that this was happening. And his timing was perfect. He got a film crew together. He got everything there. And he one of the first things they ever shot was the actual uh graves being exhumed um from the original uh mm-hmm. pet cemetery and then he went on mm-hmm. to interview uh people at both of the cemeteries right and yeah. this is one of uh Roger Ebert's it's always in the top 10 movies of all time for Roger Ebert he just loves this film and right. i can totally see why
1: well and, and yeah. i think i think too that if you if you look at this and think that um He's making fun of these people. He's really not. I mean, he's sincerely interested and in, in wants to tell their story. And yeah,
2: he's just showing their story. And he, in a way that he ends up doing for, I think, the majority of his other uh, movies is he lets the people tell the story themselves. There's right. no narrator explaining everything. No. There's just just this uh, one interview after another, and then he'll cut from one person to another and back to the first person. and um uh, it, 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 you, you find out that the people are, are very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also because it's in the 70s and, uh, well, they're all dressed in the 70s. It's just kinda, <laughs> Which it's, is kind of fun in yeah, and of itself. Yeah, it's kind of a fun flashback looking, looking well, back too.
0: You know, there's, there's big discussions of cinema verite and what is true documentary and nothing yeah. is. I mean, you have a camera aimed at someone, they're going to be behaving a certain way no matter what. And everything's going to be staged no matter what. People know when they're walking into a frame. They know when they're walking out of a frame. Mm -hmm. But with Errol Morris, he had this idea that what he would do as the director is watch the people, shut up, and let them talk. And then one of the famous quotes that I remember is that he would say, listening to what people were saying wasn't even important, but it was important to look as if you were listening to what people were saying. Actually listening to what people are saying, to me, interferes with looking as if you were listening to what people are saying. <laughs> and, and by just sitting there listening, they would come around to tell him relevatory things that would, would either explain or contradict further what their original point was. And, yeah. and he had this thing to, where he was able to just let them go to that breaking point of a conversation where, where they would just have to fill the gap <laughs> and say yeah. more things. That's right. And in Gates of Heaven, there's a transition where he's talking to all these. Like Floyd McClure is the the original pet cemetery owner who wanted to yeah. save the pets. He's known from, as Mac. Yeah, from and rendering. He didn't want yeah. them to get uh, turned into tallow. Right.
2: And th- this is a guy that truly loves pets. You can just yeah. see it, and, and he's yeah. a great
0: character. Uh huh. Yeah. But there's a turning point where there's this. All of a sudden, this woman Florence Rasmussen, Rasmussen shows up on screen elderly lady just sitting there in her doorway and she starts talking about how her poor little pet died and and then she goes on for 10 minutes probably yeah and and that speech is probably one of my favorite speeches or monologues it's just unbelievable the looks this woman gives the things this woman says the directions she goes and and it's totally untampered with it's all i think it's completely unedited I, I don't I think, think right. there are edits in it, and it's just amazing that someone can go on and on <clears throat> like me now <laughs> you know, without being interrupted. It's just sure. ridiculous, and I loved what she was saying. And then he moves on basically to the next cemetery, and it's really beautiful. And it, that was uh, one of the first times he's ever interviewed anyone was the Florence Rasmussen character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess originally when the, they first shot that, the first cinematographer refused to line up the shot the way Morris wanted it, and it came to one of those grabbing the camera kind of things, and uh-huh. and and he fired him on the spot. And then the next cinematographer was listening to Florence talk, and she and Florence had said something along the lines of, "Well, now one day you're here, and the next you're gone, right?" And the lady said, "No, wrong." And then Errol Morris was so frustrated with her, he fired her on the spot too for for even conversing or having such a st- opinionated view against right. the, the the person talking and then uh, had to hire someone else to fill the spot. So they had to to reshoot the Florence Rasmussen a second time because that woman interrupted and wow. had to be fired. So he had a vision. He wanted <laughs> things a certain way, God. and, and uh-huh. he had to kind of fight for it.
1: Sure.
2: Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, a, you can't have a camera person ruin the shot by talking. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. Or, or by
0: saying there's like an afterlife by saying, nope, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Do you not get documentary. <laughs> Good lord, it's not about you.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: pull back. But then the Harberts family, who run what is the name of their the, the Bubbling Well Pet Cemetery? <laughs> Bubbling Well. That's it. Uh yeah, that was
2: just fasc- fascinating. And and the movie kind of has a, a a harsh jump. You you don't quite get what's going on because at one point you're talking about this pet cemetery that had to be dug up, and then you're just suddenly at Bubbling Well, and they're talking about Bubbling Well. Well, what did happen is at Bubbling Well, they made a, a special kind of garden cemetery area for all the pets that came from... Do you have the name of that? the first one? Was it Falling something? Oh,
0: the Falling Flight Water. McClure one?
2: Yeah, I, 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 I can't remember the name. But anyway, they named the uh, that particular uh, kind of garden after uh, the, the, the first pet cemetery where they got all the pets. Um uh, but yeah they interviewed the harberts which is his family that takes care of this uh bubbling well pet cemetery and i found them absolutely fascinating
0: they were yeah mm-hmm.
2: and especially you have the dad he started the cemetery and uh but then they got their uh, two sons to come and help both uh, the one son was off at college and the other one was selling insurance but they came back home and uh Helping with the pet cemetery, and they're two very different sons. The uh, Dan, he's the younger son that was in college, and he's just kind of just kind of real easygoing, and you know, he <laughs> plays a guitar. He's really into music. He has a stereo. He tells you the exact model of the Pioneer stereo. he has. I could relate to him. Oh, totally. I could totally yeah. relate to him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really. This was the 70s. I mean, that's that was your pastime was the stereo and everything like that. And then uh, Philip, the older brother who was selling insurance, he was getting into this motivational kind of speaking kind of stuff big time. So his mind was just totally about business and and opportunities and all that. It was yeah, just, everything was oh, an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it was actually quite hilarious. But uh, he, he's talking at one point. Well, he's sitting at his desk and he has all his trophies arranged on his desk that he's gotten from various things. He says, Yeah, when I hire a new employee, I I make sure I have all my trophies laying out so you can see them and kind of use it as a motivation to say, Well, hey, would you like, you know, trophies like these and, you know, come work for us? And, um, but then he's talking about how he, and I wasn't sure what he was really saying here because he was saying, how the guys from the company would um, at one weekend they took the woman from the company and they got them motivated, and then the woman uh, got the guys motivated. And you think he's talking about motivational speaking and everything, which he may 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 very well have been, but it does sound like he's talking about something else, <laughs> which is kind of odd but i had to look up and find out what has become a bubbling well pet cemetery and as a matter of fact at least as of 2006 it is still in existence they have a website um you can bury your pet there if you want and dan harberts is now running the whole thing so the character with the stereo and the guitar he's in charge of the whole thing right now. So there is a, there is a certain continuity to the whole thing. Sure. So that, that was kind of neat. And And with uh,
0: these films, I mean, I know that Ebert has said he's, he estimates he's seen the film like more than 50 times. And it doesn't matter if you know what goes on in these films. It's not about plot. It's about engaging and and seeing these people and, and, and just hearing them tell their stories. And it becomes compelling to hear, you know, how they think and, and where they are and, From Floyd McClure on, it's just really even even the guy who renders animals in front of his factory plant, explaining why he does that. Interesting, yeah. He was an interesting character himself because he knew what he was doing was upsetting to people, you know. And Uh and it was, but he's trying to explain it as ecological because he's recycling, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, But it's a really fascinating movie. Some, you know, you can think it's life or death, or there's all these different themes you can think it's about, right?
2: and I think everybody sees it different. It depends a lot on you. You know, it's if you think, uh, if you're really into pets and really can relate to someone who wants to bury their pet in a very special way, you're going to see the movie one way. If you're someone that thinks pet cemeteries have to be the most ridiculous idea ever, then you're going to see it almost as a comedy yeah, pretty much. So Or it, Stephen or, King. It, it kind <laughs> of Stephen thing, King, yeah. Yeah. It's a little, yeah. yeah.
0: You know, that's kind of a funny thing is um, he was – one of the first projects he was supposed to work on was a Stephen King adaptation of one of his short stories, and all that fell apart, and then he was going to work on A Cycle of the Werewolf, which was uh, another Stephen King short. Mm -hmm. It's not really – it's a novella maybe, but it was – that was illustrated by uh, Bernie Wrightson, Mm -hmm. and uh, it had 12 paintings of a werewolf basically and and the whole 12 months of the story, and and that went a few weeks before it was destroyed, and I thought – Man, it would be great for Errol Morris to direct a Stephen King story. That would have been fantastic. It would have been good, but it always fell through. So, and then that became Silver Bullet. I know, which was <sighs> pretty bad. Man, we missed out on him. But you know, Gates of Heaven got, uh, you know, one showing at a at a film festival, and then it, you know, disappeared uh, for like a year and a half or so. And this was the whole idea. I said, if anyone could guess what we're going to talk about, I'd eat my shoe. And Uh That was the one clue. That was the clue. And this was where Werner Herzog had said earlier to Errol Morris that if you ever make this film and get it released, I'll eat my shoe. (laughs) And so eventually he did. Yes, he did. And there's a short film called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, which you can find (laughs) on on YouTube. Um, And what he did was he boiled his shoe and he went to the premiere at the film festival and he sat down and he carved up his shoe, which had been cooked with some <laughs> herbs for hours, and he ate it. But he didn't eat the sole of the shoe because, as Werner put it, is you don't eat the bones of the chicken. <laughs> so. Okay. It well, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. And Great. Errol Morris said, you know, Werner. I didn't make the movie to get Werner to eat his shoe. It's like I told I him not movie. to. <laughs> I told him not to eat his shoe. I made the movie to make a movie. <laughs> Well, but then his follow-up to that was he went back to Vernon, Florida yeah. to explore those characters some more and then ended up um, having some troubles with the locals again and you know realizing that filming disabled people and, and working on his Nub City project wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. He f- took the footage that he had of several locals that he had and pieced it together into a film called Vernon, Florida. And it's about 60 minutes long. This is not a long film, but he put it all together. It aired on a PBS network, and then eventually it got a release. And in the days before the internet, in the days before DVD, these didn't get good distribution, so
1: no.
0: not a lot of people saw it. But you can, you can rent these nowadays. And one of my favorite characters um, from Vernon, Florida, and, and these are just a series of eccentric people, someone who basically collects animals, a worm mm. farmer... <laughs> Who right. grows worms yes um there's there's an eccentric uh albert bitterling who runs around town talking about life in general <laughs> and then there's henry shipes who's the turkey hunter and henry shipes was kind of the bookend of the movie and he and his buddy snake go out turkey hunting <laughs> and just talk about turkey hunting like they're crack addicts and yeah. To see someone so passionate about the turkey hunting
1: and, you know, they actually get kind of sick. It, yeah. When they hear a, a turkey gobble. Yeah.
0: And there's wow. one point, and there's one point where he's got the diarrhea and he's got to go. <laughs> Nothing stops a diarrhea like a double gobble. Oh. <laughs> he's just got to get out there. Decides to just keep turkey hunting because oh. he heard a double gobble. That's... and And it's just fascinating. These guys are just, I swear it was like Jimbo. From South Park must be based on a Henry Scheib's character. (laughs) I couldn't find any evidence of it, but I think it's there. It could be. Could well be. But I I thought it was a really fascinating film of a bunch of of characters that, you know, a lot of people say he makes films about eccentrics. But a lot of people you wouldn't normally associate with, you get to spend quality time with and see them as real people how they see the world. And yeah, I wouldn't
1: necessarily even say they're eccentric in no. a
0: lot of ways. But I love the the couple that had the jar of sand that they thought was radioactive <laughs> sand that was growing.
1: Yeah, the growing sand. The growing
0: sand that would multiply and Whoa. and that they fully hold these beliefs to be true is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And and yep, yeah, well, I'll go get the jar and show you. Real <laughs> by the end of the summer this jar's going to be full. <laughs>
1: It's like, wow, really? So either one of these films would be a great intro into Errol Morris. Uh, his next film, uh, The Thin Blue Line, which of course was like seven years later in 88, was kind of a murder mystery. Um, it, it, it's it's really kind of one of those films where um, there's a death and there are many sides of the story and... What I find interesting in the thin blue line is is that this this is kind of the beginning of the Errol Morris um you know, you think you're seeing something one way and then you very slowly but surely see it another way by the time you know he's done. and um i it, it's it's a very interesting film about a murder of a policeman in Dallas mm-hmm. and um how it's... it looks, how it's presented. and mm-hmm. I know it, it probably doesn't sound that interesting, but in fact, it really is, just yeah. because you meet all these people and you kind of make your own decisions. Like, and you Again, it's interviews of people telling the story themselves. That's right. And what's great
0: yeah. is before he made this film, he spent most of his time making his income as a freelance private detective. Right. So when he, when he got done, he, he worked on Wall Street kind of securities and commodities issues. And when he got done and, and started working on this film, he, he thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to be a detective anymore right and then he starts working on this documentary um and becomes a a film detective basically mhm
1: well yeah and and the movie's called the thin blue line well you know i'll just leave it to the viewer to, or the listener to to watch it and and figure it out but it was just sort of a an offhand reference to a summation of of one of the suspects in the trial mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. how Justice served is seen different by very many people mm-hmm. in 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 the same film, you know. And and to do a tank riot double feature,
2: uh, this film would pair well with uh, Rashomon.
1: Oh, you
0: did it! I was wondering if you were gonna do that episode fifty three. <laughs> yeah, we uh, talked about
2: Rashomon, the uh, Kira Kurosawa nice. film. Which also deals with a murder and different views of that that murder. is very true, That's yeah, I've very heard that good, described in another yeah. play yeah, pff, excellent, excellent, you know, and um do we wanna do a where are they now on the uh characters involved know, in something? I Blue think Line? maybe this
0: one we should just leave leave hanging a little bit, just leave hanging, yeah, a yeah, little. I think this one more more than others we probably wouldn't want to get too far into.
1: Yeah, because I mean, okay. I, I think the any of these I films this one. are are you know very accessible. They're just a lot of fun, and I think if we delve into them too much, we're probably going to spoil it. Yeah, for, basically,
0: yeah. someone okay. went to jail, and someone else went to jail, and someone was innocent. <laughs> yeah, and Errol <laughs> Morris had an impact on justice by this documentary. Uh huh. So yeah. if, if you haven't seen it, then you know that this this movie itself very it took so. a couple years for it to really have an effect on the judgments but it quite did quite a few
2: years yes um a- after you see the movie you should go to the uh assuming it's not edited away but the uh the wikipedia entry for Randall Dale Adams who's one of the characters yes. in the movie he has a uh really interesting quote um that they they list in the wikipedia article but it's uh it's a spoiler so i won't re- read it off here but uh that's a, that's a good thing to check out after you see the movie because it's,
0: you know, yeah. We should we should have a spoiler episode says, at some point where we just we tell you it, everything we we'll know. Come, about we'll it. come back and we'll do a follow up. <laughs> yeah.
1: But in, and even though uh, he did a movie about a character in the Thin Blue Line eleven years later, I would very much suggest if you get the Thin Blue Line, you also get Mister Death: The Rise and Fall of Fred A. Lecter Jr.
0: Well, let me tell you, um, in in the Thin Blue Line. There's a character and it it gets confused a lot uh, there's a character called Doctor. Death right Dr Death is James Grigson
1: right no right I wasn't saying it's but right right I, I just think that the the two are very complementary absolutely
0: but I thought they were the same and when I got when, when I rented Mr. Death, I thought oh. it was about dr Death oh, no what oh, James no, no. Grigson did is just truly a crime he he went and went to people who are on death row basically in Texas and whatnot. And would uh meet with the inmate who was or the person who was in jail being sentenced for a crime and then have them do a personality test, walk out of the jail, appear before the jury and say, I can say with a hundred percent certainty this person will commit murder again. Right. Yeah, with a hundred percent certainty.
1: So he was like essentially the uh-huh. court the court psychiatrist. He was the and, court psychiatrist, yeah. And and he would give these these very phony baloney tests that um and, and he would almost invariably come back and say, Yes, this mm-hmm. is this is a psychotic. This, you know, this is this person yeah. will do great violence and great harm. They must be dealt with in the, in the harshest possible. Right. Mm-hmm. He
0: eventually got expelled from the American Psychiatric Association in 1995.
1: But it took that long. It
0: took that long. Yeah. He, he yeah. died at the age of 72 in 04. So he's passed, and and it's atrocious the things he's done.
1: That's right. And
0: he had a hand in in the thin blue line, and and there are still some defenders yeah. of him out there, and it's kind of unbelievable. Right. I, yeah, <laughs> actually, he just n-
2: basically made stuff
0: up.
1: Now that I think of it, I I take that back. I think actually, Mr. Death is probably more complimentary with the Fog of War. Yeah. Okay. So,
0: Mr. Death was that his next film?
1: Um, no, no actually, that's... um, his very next film was uh the the wonderful uh Dark Wind. Oh, okay, let me tell you. I mean, I don't know if you even want to go into this. I totally do want to
0: go into this because
1: this is the Lou Diamond
0: Phillips film that was filmed in 1991. This is his first venture into fiction. It's based on a novel about a Navajo uh, rookie police detective um, in a drug smuggling Was that like a
1: Tony Hillerman thing? Yeah, and it's totally horrible. It's
0: absolutely disgusting. But here's the thing that I think everyone should do if you do actually have to go see this movie or some friend pressures you into seeing it. Make a drinking game of it. And every time you see the boom mic go into the scene, take a drink. And when it goes out of the scene and comes back in again, take another drink. Because I think the boom mic operator wanted to get supporting actor credit as well. <laughs> one time it showed up even from the bottom of the screen.
1: Oh, wow. my God. So let me
0: get this straight.
2: <laughs> you rented the DVD. Yes. It Not, not some stolen thing no, that was no. taken out of not the studio this or is anything. not a Pirate Bay bootleg it was the actual was DVD was the actual DVD and they still had the boom mic falling in the scene and up in the scene and up and it in was, the scene it was
0: horrible <laughs> it was funny I, I laughed I was laughing at this movie oh. it was so stilted and nothing takes you out of a movie more than you know seeing the boom mic show up oh absolutely <laughs> but uh, really it was hilarious and uh, Lou Diamond Phillips accident and um, Errol Morris was really upset about this film because he had no Control over it. It was a studio production. He had huge differences with Robert Redford and he wanted to piece the film together a certain way and it was all structured and budgeted and had to go a certain way. And He basically walked off the film and didn't want anything to do with it and considers it, you know, not his movie. So I don't really consider Dark Wind an Errol Morris film because it might be that he just left them with the footage and they pieced it together and and they put it
1: together that way. We don't really know. Having to have uh, hissy fights with Robert Redford would be enough for me to walk along because I would totally bitch slap Bob. (laughs) Well, if you look at it, a
0: lot of these documentaries, like The Thin Blue Line, he didn't know what he was putting together. He was originally focusing on Grigson, and then he ran into this character you know, basically on death row and started piecing together the whole thing and realized, my film's not about Grigson at all. It's about this character. And then, boom, this one story shows up amongst the 85 people that he'd been talking to— and so he wanted the freedom to make the film what the film should be, not sure. what the studio executive thought it should be.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, that makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. So
0: don't watch it unless it becomes a mystery science theater film at some point. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I kept thinking this would make be. a great mystery science it theater so totally film. It totally
1: could be. <laughs> uh, his, and the film he did uh, actually the same year as uh, The Dark Wind was A Brief History of Time. Which was, of course, based on the the best selling book by uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking. Right, and you know, Dr. Stephen Hawking to me is a very fascinating character. Um, I mean, the, the book is 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 very interesting. His life is very interesting, but I got to be honest with you. I mean, it's it's just a hoot to watch this this whole thing because people react to him like. Oh, it's it's sort of like that Star Trek episode where the starship captain is, is, is in the, the chair where it's like, Chris, do you want to go to Talos for <laughs> Boop. <laughs> you know, and he's just got like a little oh, light. Yeah. You know? And... But this guy is talking about all these, you know, very advanced physical theories and he just comes wheeling up and there's like the standing ovation in the auditorium. And then he starts doing that voice and, you know, you laugh at first, but then after a while you kind of, you know, you just kind of get into it. It's like Uh the history of time as we know it now. You know yeah. and and you just and, start
2: getting pulled into that, and you kind of realize that he has a kind of a little sense of humor too, yes, he does yeah, he
1: kind of mixes it in there a bit well, he just he recently went on the vomit comet and uh was weightless, you know that that uh where the astronauts train and they go up in this special airplane where. Um, you know, it's all padded and right. they, they do this, this steep climb and then this fast drop. And then you're weightless for this period of time. Yeah. So they all, they said, Hey, would you like to come on there? And we'll, you know, kind of like make sure you don't, you know, bang into anything, but <laughs> you know, and so, you know, they show him and he's just flying around the room and they're all kind of holding their hands up to make sure he doesn't, he's like, I'm flying. I'm flying. <laughs> But in any case, that's a very interesting one, and and I think also goes very well with the next film, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, which I think in a certain way combines um, Errol Morris' eye for eccentricity, but also just the fascination of the characters, because he's he's talking to people who are subscribed—Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control actually refers to a school of thought in robotics— Uh, One is that you create your robots in a more human form. Another is that you base them upon nature or really nothing in nature. Well, fast, cheap, and out of control is so. Instead, you could put a lot of money into a humanoid robot, or you could make millions of cheaper little robots that would just go flying, you know, everywhere like yeah. little insects. This
2: is basically uh, saying in the context of exploring space or exploring exactly. Mars. Yeah, so you don't, don't a, have to have
1: one rover. You could just send yeah. out a thousand of these things, and, and then
2: if a couple break down, don't work—that's no big, big deal because you
1: got all the rest. That's right. Yeah, and uh, then there's also a guy who's a topiary artist you know uh shaping bushes yes into hedge trimming but hedge to make tri- it look like animals and everything oh yeah. it was totally cool um yes he was actually one of my favorite characters in that film and then there's the lion tamer he, this guy i wanted to party with you <laughs> know yeah, he's Cause he was just out there uh-huh
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you know mr death who well who's the fourth guy then um it's the uh it's, the mole it's... the naked mole rat the,
2: the mole rat guy yeah. yes he had the little uh,
1: monarch butterfly bow tie. Yeah. That yeah, that was... dude was like you look up eccentric in the dictionary and there's a picture of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part of the But he was interesting. Film, he was very interesting, yeah. yeah.
0: Mr. Death, uh Luchner, is that is how you pronounce his name?
1: Uh Lukter.
0: Yeah. Luchter. He was originally supposed to be part of Fast Cheap and Out of Control. Mm-hmm. And uh Fred's story is about how he's in basically a, a trained electrocution device manufacturer yeah. who eventually falls into a neo-Nazi plot line that that leads him down a path that that involves Hitler, <laughs> basically. Right. And uh, the story of Fred becomes so involved and, and long that it was uh, Errol Morse's wife who who said, "You know, anytime you introduce Hitler to the mix, like if you add a little bit of Hitler, everything becomes Hitler flavored." <laughs> you know right. and it's like it's like having a soup and if there's any <laughs> little bit of hitler in it everything becomes hitler flavored and it doesn't do any of these other characters justice to have the character who's hitler flavored right. you know be part of fast cheap and out of control so yeah. he focused on Myth- mr death and did the fred lukner story and it turned out he had a he had a
1: full full length feature there and it was enough it's a it, and that's that one is a very dark film in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, Um and it, it would have. I mean, I agree with what he's saying about the Hitler flavoring and everything. But Fast Cheap and Out of Control, it's a is pretty kind of a, it's upbeat a, film. It right. is. It's a real celebration of people and yeah, they're following their dreams and so forth. And I, I think it's actually a very good film. And and he wouldn't have fit with this film. No, Mr. Death, like right. his, his was, arc was different. Yeah. <laughs> However, I
2: think. um once you get towards the end of fast cheap out of control and i don't think i'm really ruining it by saying it it does explore the issues of life and death and it has yes. each character making comments um, about life oh, and death right, and the beginnings yeah. and ends man's attempts so, to control our own destinies by controlling yeah, our environment exactly and uh you know they parallel the mole rats or the the the, the danger of the tigers or the uh, just well, hedge trimming, and, uh, and uh, robots, etc. Uh, but yeah, so this kind of uh, quaint, fun movie about four different people uh, comes to be a good a uh, uh, thinking point on uh, on a life in general. So oh, it absolutely. it makes a. Uh, I, I enjoyed the movie thoroughly. I thought it was plus. Great. I really like robots and and circus and stuff. Oh, I do and too. Stuff. Errol I mean, Morris had been totally heavily cool. he's
0: been heavily criticized for manipulating people to be. Geeks or eccentrics or whatever, and and he doesn't even mm. like he doesn't even like to hear that he only interviews eccentrics or st- weirdos or freaks. You but know, the guy wearing the bow tie had been in movies previously and taken advantage of, and he was he felt very strongly about how he wanted to be portrayed. He would not sign the non disclosure until after he'd seen the film right. finished, and Errol Morris decided you know this is a risk that no director would take really. But Errol That's decided true. to do it and he said, you know, and, and when he <laughs> showed up for the first shot with the bow tie, this is one of those cinema verite things is what am I supposed to do? Tell him, no, you're going to look like a nerd or you're going to look geeky. Mm-hmm. Take off the bow tie or should he let him dress how he wants to dress so that he can be in the film and be comfortable with how he's being portrayed? So he let him wear the bow tie and, and let him not sign the nondisclosure until after he'd seen the film. Mm-hmm. And then he signed it, and boom, the, the film was done.
2: Right, and you know, to be honest, I, I I saw the bow tie, and you know, I thought it was funny, and you know, whatever, I wouldn't dress like that. But <laughs> really, you, you, you know, I haven't in many Uh-oh. years, at any rate. Well, okay. but Christmas is coming. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a cool bow tie. <laughs> it was, but you know, I never thought of him. You know, he was obviously someone who was really obsessed with um, his particular field which was these mole rats and uh he, he had a great interest in those things however I you know and, and perhaps a little eccentric but I didn't think that was necessarily a bad thing no in his case it, it just
1: that's the way he was well that's the way humans are exactly you know that's it that, <laughs> yeah. that's why I reject the notion right. that Errol Morris only shows eccentrics because I and I and I think this would I would tie this back To his early fascination, if not obsession, with Ed Gein, because that's the thing, is that Ed Gein was not only this trusted and loved member of Plainfield Society, he babysitted for a lot of kids in the area, and they Mm. never thought a thing of it, and it's always the person that you meet every day and then you talk to them for just a couple of minutes and you realize what very interesting viewpoints and perspectives they might have. Mm-hmm. Now, if you choose to call that eccentric, well then you're a sad little person. <laughs> Another yeah. great
0: thing about Sad Cheap or Sad Cheap. Sad cheap and Out of Control. <laughs> sad.
1: Fast <laughs> Cheap and Out of Control
0: is that this is the first time that he got to use the Interatron. So yes. the Interatron was developed as a way to project his face on the screen so that there'd be a video image of his live face and his live facial expressions exactly in front of the camera he was aiming at the people talking. So that instead of yeah. having them look slightly off to the camera left or right, they'd be looking directly at you, the watcher, the viewer, and uh-huh. you would have this connection with them, and and it worked really, really well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, they react differently because they're looking at a human face, but in a certain sense there's a disconnection and they can just be more comfortable to be themselves without necessarily having all the same body language and a person mm-hmm. actually present in the room. Right. Yeah. Which I know sounds kind of complicated, but in fact, it's, it's, it's really brilliant when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But getting back to to, to Mr. Death, um, I think what I found the most intriguing about this movie was um, it was kind of the, um, well, I mean, just the fact that somebody builds electric chairs. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess you always figured somebody did it.
0: Yeah, but it, it seemed like it was a niche that he found himself in. He did. And after he built an electric chair, someone said, wow, you're good at electric chairs. We use a gas chamber here in this state. Right. Can you build us a gas chamber? And he said, well, I guess I probably can. <laughs> right. And then he went and built a gas chamber. He went, hey, we use lethal injection. I hear you can do gas chambers and, and right. electric chairs. Can you build wow. us a lethal injection? That guy's kind
1: of like a death contract. Sure,
0: I'll try it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean,
0: you had to admire his spunk and you had to... I mean, that was really interesting that that... he was an
1: entrepreneur in a lot of ways, but Mm -hmm. then it also got into Mm -hmm. the whole aspect of, uh, which in and of itself is a very interesting area, is the whole aspect of Holocaust denial. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, (sighs) yeah, you have to
0: watch the arc of his life. I mean, it's sad that you're watching the arc of a life, you know, rather than a story of a character. This really happened to him, and he made crucial errors along the way and agreed with them. Right. Because it forwarded a certain uh feeling in his head or whatever, but you can see where he's making decisions that affect him later and it's fascinating. It's it fascinating. Is. And they're not right. You <laughs> know they're not no, right. No. But but he seems to have to go along
1: a certain way. It does. It does. And and so it I would say that uh, Mr. Death is is a very fascinating ride. Although my my favorite Errol Morris film by far, and I shouldn't say this because I have his latest film is Standard Operating Procedure, and none of us have seen it because it's uh, we we missed it at the theater. It and came it, in
0: for a week in the theater. Yeah, we were unable to see it, and I've 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 emailed, and it comes out in October, mid October. I emailed uh, Errol Morris, and and I did hear back on DVD. It is nowhere in the United States in theaters at this point, and wow. it will come out on DVD in o- mid October. Which I will look forward to yeah, definitely. I've, I've read the articles and the stories, and this seems like a really good investigation of Abu Ghraib in a right. in a very not judgmental way. So right. But you were
1: gonna say, oh, I'm fog sorry. of war, fog of war, uh, which is uh, the inter- an interview with I think probably one of the more fascinating characters, and quite honestly, we 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 could do a a a, a douchery update mm-hmm. on uh, whole episode. W- a whole episode on yeah. Robert McNamara. We could. Who, he, of course, was the uh, Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson. And in 1960,
0: yeah. he was, for a very, very brief time, president, the president of Ford Motor Company. Ford Motor Company, <laughs> yeah. that's right. So he was a douchebag for a very short period oh of time. Oh, my God, he's- But, but long enough but, to give them seatbelts. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that but much. now,
2: one thing you have to realize is Robert S. McNamara- is someone who just totally strapped his ass to the history the history of the 20th century. Yes. I mean, he hits at least 2 thirds of the century he does. in major ways. Yeah. And so it's it's even more than the a few selected areas and, and No, it's we'll it's not just about Vietnam.
1: It's yeah. it's about his entire career. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in a lot of ways you could look at a, at a whole generation like this. I mean, these were people that they were children of immigrants, they worked very hard, they uh really were very successful people and but then when you when you look back on it and you look at the things that made them successful, they're not all that pretty. Mm-hmm. And
0: uh well, a lot of people he took a lot of uh criticism for this being an apology or a, a shifting of the blame of the twentieth century.
1: You no, know, he never he never mm-hmm. apologized in that film. In fact, when Morris started to really kind of push him toward the end of the film, mm-hmm. Morris actually was very criticized because he did not push McNamara more on critical questions and issues like the Cuban Missile Crisis, involvement in Vietnam, and so forth. I think it worked. I but think it, it worked. worked beautifully. I mean, yeah. to hear
0: him talk about the instance and go on and on about what happened was fascinating to me. It was. This is, for the most part, uh,
2: Robert McNamara telling the story his way right and yeah it, and if it, you look at the, it, the,
1: the so it's pictures, one-sided yeah um, robert a, a cocky arrogant younger robert mcnamara um doing his press conferences and showing his pie, pie, pie charts and bar graphs you can definitely fast forward about 40 years and see you know donald rumsfeld Doing the same thing, you know, in his news conferences, even right down to the little round glasses, mm-hmm. and you know, pointing this. Now, you know, we're 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 winning here. Clearly, we're we're moving ahead. There's no insurgency. There's, you know, and it it's yeah. the same thing. And his he's a very key figure in some very significant areas of the 20th century. And I think he wanted to do it as. I really honestly don't. I never got the sense he was apologizing, but I think he was trying to put things into context. But the problem was, is that the, the big questions in McNamara's life were totally untouched in this documentary. Like, for instance, his res- his very quick resignation from uh, Johnson's well, administration yeah. Yeah. and so forth. I mean, if you have any sense of that period of time at all, you can pretty much fill in the blanks yourself. But it He's not been... going to say. It. I mean, you can yes. tell he's not going to tell you whether it... he resigned or was
0: asked to resign. It's right. going to remain that way. Yeah. Exactly. He wanted to just tell you where he was thinking at certain points that led him down certain paths. And, oh, yeah. And it's just fascinating. Yeah. Now, stuff.
1: when this one was in the theaters for one week, I went out to the theater and saw This that one week it was out there because I just thought it was so fascinating and I just he's got this whole oh my god what was was it like ten or eleven points that yeah eleven lessons learned eleven lessons learned (laughs) Robert oh my god I just found that just riveting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the I
2: I believe on the DVD and the special features they the eleven lessons are possibly attributed to someone else although McNamara goes through them. But McNamara, as a bonus feature, also they list, um, I think it's maybe 10 lessons, which are similar to the 11 lessons, but Uh. they're exactly what McNamara wants to say. Mm. And Uh what's interesting is they're kind of like, if you learn these lessons, you're not going to invade Iraq for the hell of it, is what I took out of it. Yeah. It's kind of a, a message he never says specifically, but... Yeah, there I there were it's things implied. he
0: said that could apply very heavily to right yeah. now. You know, originally, uh-huh. The Fog of War was filmed as uh, Errol Morris had been doing the series on Bravo called First Person, and then it moved to the Independent <laughs> yeah. Film Channel. Mm-hmm. So on on Bravo, it was twenty three minutes long, and on on uh, the American Independent Film Channel, it was twenty like seven minutes long. So he had more time to work on it. Mm-hmm. Well, he sat down to interview uh, McNamara, and it went on all day. And then he interviewed him the next day, and then he interviewed him even more later. And he was like. Reviewing the footage and he said, "Oh my God, I've got enough here for a full-length feature." And so oh, he sure. he turned the Fog of War into a full-length movie, and and that's how the Fog of War turned out as it did, and it's brilliant. And it's
2: not just one full-length feature. I watched the special features on the DVD, which had a bunch of deleted scenes, and quite frankly, that's almost a whole nother film in it in of itself. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's just kind of re-edits of stuff from the main sure. film. But it hits on some major points that aren't even in the uh, the main film. The one, one which I found very interesting is um, uh, McNamara worked on a passenger ship in uh, 1937, which happened to be docked at Shanghai, uh, China, oh, that's and r- just as the Japanese were bombing Shanghai. And McNamara says he stood out on the deck of the ship and watched this thing, and in fact the Chinese actually – Mistake the ship as a Japanese ship and bomb the ship. Some as well. I don't think they did much damage, but McNamara says I could have been killed. But so, essentially, McNamara witnesses the everything. Very, yeah, yeah. The, the very beginning of World War Two. It, it depending on what historian you talk to, at different right. point different things are called the beginning of World War Two. Some would consider this uh, Shanghai bombing the beginning.
0: But his explanation of the firebombing of. Uh uh, you know, of, of Tokyo, Japan, yeah, yeah Japan. all sixty-seven cities that they firebombed, and then and then decided to you know drop the nuclear bombs on. Right, his his walk through Curtis Lemay's decision-making processes yeah. and his processes, it's fascinating to see him talk Absolutely. about this. And if you've listened to our Studio Ghibli episode where we talked about one of the saddest films ever f- made, yeah. Grave of the Fireflies. it is a stark counterpoint. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah see that the very, man behind it all. Very stark.
2: That would be another uh good uh tank right double feature would be Grave of the Fireflies and Fog of War. Fog of oh war. god, yeah. Oh, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, Kill me now or Yeah, that's right. And then, and then go open your veins. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, um... but if you've seen all these films, um check out uh it's all available on DVD. Um, The first person series on Bravo. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite. These are all like short vignettes of different people that he's met as well. Um, And one of my favorites is uh, Temple Grandin, who is the autistic woman who designs the slaughterhouses for humane slaughtering of cattle. And she's a stark uh, counterpoint to Mr. Death, who seemed to revel in this execution business. (laughs) She could just visualize in her head as an autistic woman um, how to slaughter the cattle more humanely. And, and these are really fascinating characters and and humans that he basically talks to. And there's many, many, and I still haven't seen them all, but uh, there's some fascinating episodes there.
2: There is, uh, yeah, I, I watched a few of them. Uh, one is called Mr. Det. Uh, and that, that's, um, I, you know, if any of you out there have some credit card debt that's causing you in trouble or you're in this foreclosure.
0: Call Andrew Capoccia. Uh, yeah. He knows what he's talking about. Uh. Go
2: watch this first-person yeah.
0: uh, uh, interview, which you can get on a, a DVD. And that that shows how the Interatron really works. You can see the Interatron, and you yeah. can see it moving because he can get good angles on the person he's interviewing, yeah. and you and get a vision of it.
2: That's one thing you got to know is Errol Morris's tripod – uh, the the, the 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 little screw must be messed up or something because it always slants sideways, or what you know everything's at a
0: forty-five degree angle. He can't get it level things off, but that's his style. One of the other things I'd mentioned uh, about him is that uh, uh, these documentaries do not pay the bills. He does not get rich off these documentaries, but he has made many, 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 many commercials. If yes. you yep. if you go to errolmorris.com, you can see all the Miller High Life commercials that he's made like somewhere around 80, <laughs> so you yeah. can see a
1: lot of his... It's amazing when yeah, you stop to think of it. I mean, we've probably all been watching his work for years mm-hmm. and now realize Yeah, he's a that. great director. I,
2: I watched, oh, I can't remember the product, but it was something he filmed in uh, Helsinki, Finland. Well, he filmed a bunch uh, was... of stuff
0: for uh, MoveOn.org even. Yeah. He's filmed stuff for Apple. He did the whole Switch campaign. And for a lot of you who know the Ellen Feist... Have you seen the Ellen Feist switch campaign? Mm-hmm. There's a big internet sensation of the woman who, or the, the 14-year-old girl who's a stoner or whatever, and she's not really. She claims right. it was just Benadryl, and she says how her computer crashed, and, and you know, oh, it was a bummer. you know. Uh, so the that, that Ellen Feist bummer one was directed by Errol Morris. Oh, wow. She was a friend mm-hmm. of his son's who came in to get the free food off the set, and Errol said, come on, you'll do a commercial too. And he had the three kids all do commercials about their computers. Okay. And uh, it was just a fluke. And I-, I wanted to mention Ellen Feist; I thought she deserved it. Absolutely. <laughs> so,
1: Well, yeah. so I-, I would say that there's, you know, really just a lot of these. And if you're new to them or if you haven't seen all of them, by all means, I'm sure there's um, a-, a DVD store near you that will have them. You should revisit
0: yeah. Gates of Heaven just for the the guitar playing. Yeah, um, (laughs) guitar jam. The guitar jam on the mount. The uh, (laughs) I found that a very touching film. I really
1: did.
2: Yeah, I I I kept thinking about it a long time afterwards. That's why I had to hit the internet and see what these guys are doing now.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm glad you did. You know,
2: if uh, anybody knows what. Philip Harberts is doing now, I'd be absolutely curious. You can uh, send the info at feedback at tankriot.com. Well, Dan
0: Dan seemed like such a great guy and he got married and he's running the place yeah, still. Yeah. That's really cool.
2: He's doing yeah. he's doing well for himself. So yeah. that's good.
0: Absolutely.
2: The uh I wanted to mention one uh, first-person show that relates to a tank riot episode of previous uh, cryptozoology, oh. and that's the uh, <laughs> Eyeball to Eyeball. Eyeball to Eyeball. Which is about this man that's the uh, searching the uh, giant squid, which, of course, <laughs> kind of started out in mythology, mm-hmm. right? And but we have discovered it actually is real. It does, in fact, uh, exist. Yeah, so... Um,
0: that, and that, that unlike an the Bigfoot movie. that they found, that even Lauren Coleman said. Oh, my God. I was, was glad you brought a that Bigfoot. up. Bigfoot.
1: I mean, that was the worst, like, ape outfit I've ever seen yeah. in my life. You you think after our episode about the Minnesota
0: Ice Man, they wouldn't have tried to throw yeah, a rubber like suit uh-huh. People, we're in all an ice cooler. <laughs> Especially yeah. a, a defrosting one that's
1: not going to oh. keep frozen. You know, I just, I also wanted to say, too, just as kind of a, um, a sidebar to some of our. Um, one of our earlier episodes uh, concerning Roger Corman. Um, There's a magazine that's out that I don't know if our listeners are, have read or not, but I, I find it to be kind of a fun read. It's Mental Floss. Right. And it's just kind of a fun Magazine of like weird trivia and and uh, historical events and articles and so forth. Anyways, they have a quite extensive article in the latest issue of Mental Floss concerning Roger Corman and all the people he influenced and movies and so forth. So, if you enjoyed that episode, by all means, pick up the magazine. I think you might like the magazine in and of itself. And so. if you want to
0: send us a copy of uh, Roger Corman's version of the Fantastic Four film, our mailing address is Tank Riot, P.O. Box 2744. Madison, Wisconsin, five three seven zero one two seven four four. Our email address is feedback at tankriot.com. We are currently accepting donations to fund our bi- I mean binge trip to uh, the B Movie Festival. The B movie festival in, in Franklin, Franklin Indiana. Indiana.
1: We will have we're learning to speak Indiana even even now. That's down south, <laughs> right? yeah it is it uh, Indiana is often been, uh, called the South's middle finger into the midwest and um my my so I've, I've learned i've learned to throw in some Indiana phrases like um this pizza is greasy or uh, can I, I use think of the bubbler ha- <laughs> i'm gonna hang out the warsh <laughs>
2: well <laughs> I uh, hopefully I won't offend anybody, but uh, I have an uncle who uh, hails from Indiana. Oh, and uh he claims that Indiana is settled by hillbillies that we're trying to get to oh, de- Detroit for the good jobs, but never made it because oh. the car broke down.
1: <laughs> oh, nice. We at
2: Tank Riot have to not, offend. That's, I'm, I'm
0: sorry. It's just I'm just repeating something We're going to be going down yeah. there soon.
1: Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, a lot of our emails are complimentary, and a lot of our emails are stop berating the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you're from any part of the world, which we have mentioned derogatorily, we're sorry. Well, hard cheese, as we say here in
2: Skydaddy <laughs> yeah. Nation. Well, you know there are parts of Indiana that are really cool. I mean, think of blo- oh, backpedaling. Wow, backpedaling a wow. big tail. What are you? Yeah, uh, pump the for, boy. Running for
0: president, <laughs> McCain. There.
2: One of my favorite movies. uh it's the pump sound the break of freedom. freedom. <laughs> Breaking <laughs> away. And that national treasure. Indiana. That is good. Yeah.
1: That is. That's good. a cool movie. But you know, um, yeah. So yeah, we will be accepting donations because we will be doing some interviews, some on the spots. Live um, updates, live updates, mm-hmm. letting you know what's going on on the road, suggesting some films, uh, confabbing, networking, if you will, if you will. <laughs> I'll bring business cards. <laughs> That's right, there will be business cards. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. i've 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 been in several meetings this week where people have offered me business cards, and I have none. I mean, I used to have, I was actually given this huge box when I started my job and I flung them out like within a day and I've never (laughs) asked to replace them. So it's like, you know, people I think always like, want. It's like this Japanese custom of exchanging business cards? And I just, I have none. So. Well, we'll uh, we'll
2: maybe get together some uh, on the back of some old uh, receipts or something, but make you up some. Yeah. For uh we'll post it notes with uh, some things uh, yeah. scrawled upon them. That's yeah, right. something like that.
1: <laughs> well, Napkins. <laughs> it's like it's like Mitch Hedwig said. <laughs> Hedwig. Yeah, he said, you know, uh, really the only thing a business card is for is to throw it in a jar and you might get a free lunch, and that's what your title should be. Possible free lunch Probably. winner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that that's guy. That's right. But who needs a business
2: card when all you have to do is remember tankriot.com. There you go.
1: It's a trademark.
0: Escalator temporarily stares. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the convenience.
1: (laughs) Well, good night from Tank Ride. Oh geez, that was a good one.
0: go a lot of dry just to get up out here. Now we up in a big league. That's the theme song for the Jefferson.
2: Ain't nothing wrong with
0: that. You out of your mind. What? You really need help?
2: And just because the theme song don't make it not true.